0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the fourth episode of the ongoing series here on Farm Chatter about Spanish Jewry through the ages. So on this episode of the series, actually newly recorded, uh, we discuss the Spanish G'daylem Rabbanim, mainly the Talmudists and Halachists in Muslim Spain. So this is kind of going again from early on, let's just say from like the a year 1000 a thereabouts, until, well before, until... Uh, I think we went, we went to the Rambam. So, um, but that's tw- 13th century, essentially. Um, so that's really what it's going to focus on. I will say the poets and the Pythonim we kind of discussed in the uh, previous episode with Professor Brand, Um And then the philosophers really haven't covered yet. It's something that I may return to later. Right now, I don't have anything on that. So we haven't done that. Um, also have not, well, I, I should say, we have not really discussed like the disputation of the Ramban. We haven't really gotten to there. So I'm, I'm just mentioning that here because this is kind of the last episode in Muslim Spain, even though there is a lot more to discuss. So if you want to hear more on it, email me, but it, maybe it's something we'll return to. But in general, the the project, I've been curious what anyone thinks so far of this series. It's kind of um, pretty ambitious, so to speak. It's, it's you know, differs than the Shop States V series. The previous series was defined on something more defined. This is kind of, Spanning centuries and trying, especially Muslim Spain, and then going to Christian Spain. So this will kind of be the end, so to speak, of Muslim Spain as we transition towards Christian Spain, so to speak. Again, using very general terms here. I know there's, you know, there was no Spain still at this time where we are, but we're somewhere still in the early, from the 11th to the 13th century, let's just say, and uh, to orient you. And then we will be moving on after this next week. Um, getting into the papal Inquisition, kind of the pre-Inquisition Inquisition before moving on to the riots of 1391. And then after that will come uh, the Converso, Moranos, New Christians, whatever term you want to use, even though they might differ a little, bit, let's just say one term. And then after that, getting into the Inquisition, followed by the expulsion, etc. So that will be to come. Um, but again, this episode is trying to give a broad sweep of the halachist and the Talmudist, let's just say, because again, it's not, I don't want to say Rabbanim or good because we're not talking about the, the poets and the philosophers, etc. There's a lot there. So perhaps later on, um, we'll get to that. Also, I don't have anything recorded as of yet on the same type of episode on um, Christian Spain, you know, let's just say Christian Spain, but again, later on Spain. 14th, 15th century. So if you like this kind of episode and you want to hear something like this again on Later On Spain, let me know. Uh, I know it's something that has to be added. And again, like I said, the, the series is kind of ambitious. I'm sure there will be things that are missing out. So if you want to hear something about a specific area, please email me, nachi at or sfaramcheddar at gmail.com, whichever works. Um, additionally, I would like to thank once again the corporate sponsor of the series, Glock Plumbing, so for all your service needs, big or small, in New Jersey, with a full service division, from boiler changeouts, main sewer lines, snakeouts, cameraing main lines, to a simple faucet leak, Gluck Plumbing Service Division has you covered. Give them a call, 732-523-1836, extension 1. Again, 732-523-1836, extension 1. Uh, you know, I met, I met someone recently who said, oh, he was going to call Gluck Plumbing to run a gas line. He ended up uh, not calling someone in Lakewood. I mean, come on, what's the excuse? Call them. You want to run a gas line? You want to run something? anything plumbing related in Lakewood, again, 7325231836, extension one. And I thank them again for their generosity in sponsoring this series as well as previous Shots series and many other episodes on the podcast. Uh, speaking of which, if anyone wants to sponsor an episode of the podcast, again, I've mentioned this a number of times, it is $360. You can um, email me again. Um, also, uh, there'll be a link for via PayPal as well as um, now the podcasting take Zell. So but the but Zell is svarimchatter at gmail.com. That email will be in the show's notes as well. And if you can subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, um, Apple Podcast, Spotify, as I mentioned in the previous episode, 24-6. Uh, the podcast is on 24-6, so uh, check it out on there and subscribe in there as well. And uh, wherever you get your podcast. And again, enjoy this fourth episode on in the Spain series, Spanish Jewry Through the Ages. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Swarm Chatter Podcast and another episode on the ongoing series on a Spanish Jewry Through the Ages. On this episode of the podcast and series, I'm going to be joined by Professor Mark Herman, who is the Assistant Professor of Premodern Jewish History at York University in Toronto, Canada, and he's a member of the faculty of the Kachitsky Center of Jewish Studies at York, um, and we'll be discussing kind of a broad, sweeping look at the uh, rabbanim, gedolim, rishayim. Whoever everybody want to, Talmudists, halachists. We can use uh, yeshivish and academic lingo here on the the uh, again the figures in Muslim Spain. So again, it's in Spain, but I guess you know we were just telling Professor Herman we're really in Al Andalus this episode, or really very firmly in the Muslim Spain. The, so this series, this episode is only going to focus on those figures. So already tease like we won't be discussing Rajba and Ramban and Ran and Ritva and all the later figures that many listeners will be assuming are Spanish, Sfarty, Gidoilim, Rishanim, they used to their Sfarim. That's not going to be covered in this episode. Anyways, let's get to the episode. So thank you, Professor Herman, for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm really honored to to be here. I okay, a listener. So
0: yeah. Okay. So let's start off with uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, I grew up uh, in, uh, just outside Toronto. I uh, went to Brandeis um, and spent some time in Gush, and NYU. Um, and I got my PhD from the University of Pennsylvania and the Reli- Department of Religious Studies. Uh, after that, I had a, held a few postdocs before beginning this position at York last summer.
0: Okay, so we're obviously discussing, we're going to be discussing Muslim Spain and all the, a lot of the figures there. Uh, so you know this stuff. And how did you get involved with this? You've done work in sure.
1: and... Yeah, I mean, I think that the, so that what you mentioned Al Andalus, right? That's the, just so to catch everyone up, to sort of inform everybody, that's the um, Arabic term for this, the region of southern Spain that became known as Sfarad um, in Jewish culture. Um, and Al Andalus was, was part of it, part of my, part of the reason I got interested in it because it's sort of the major center of, one of the major centers of, um, you know, Talmudic learning in the Islamic world. My work really focuses on Jews in the Islamic world, Jews who wrote in um, Judeo-Arabic, um, in addition to Hebrew. And, you know, there's a few major centers. That basically, you know, we sort of know about Baghdad and the Ghanim. We know sort of about um, Egypt and some other place in North Africa. And, the, you know, the other, obviously, looming center is this very long and um, illustrious community in, in you al Andalus in, in, in uh, Jewish Sfarad. So it's sort of that is one piece of this much larger picture that I'm interested in.
0: Okay, so let's uh, let's let's start off here. Let's kind of give. So listeners are familiar already with a couple of or if not refer back to the kind of a general broad sweep of the region of the area. And again, like I said, we're in, you know, we're going to start early on in Muslim Spain in the early uh, thousand or before in the early, uh, you know, thousand years ago. Um, And so. Let, let's set the stage of Spain. What's the you know again? We're focusing this episode on Talmudic learning halacha, so we're not going to be we'll we'll make mention of maybe the grammarians and uh, poetry. There already was an episode with Professor Ross Brand. Listeners of hers, we're not doing that. We're not doing the parshanim on Chumash and those things. But anyways, on the Talmudic halacha, so let's say like you know yeshiva learning, so to speak. These like uh, the term. Where, where are the origins? Where does it start? What are the basic figures to begin?
1: Yeah, so it's it's a really really good question, and it's something that um, we can't really answer. Um, we obviously know that there were Jewish communities in the Iberian Peninsula for centuries. Um, but so much of their you know, Judaism, their Jewish expression, um, really until the late 10th century, um, and even into the early 11th, is something of a mystery. Um, only in the 10th century do we really get um, named figures. Um, before that, we have these sort of elusive reports about um, that are in claims to like longstanding learning or... Or ancient connections, but we don't really know that much about these communities. So we have um, figures like Shmuel Hanagid, who we'll meet in a few minutes, who sort of claim that Jewish learning dates back to the times of the of the Gemara already, uh, et cetera. We have other late, a little bit later stories um, of a certain Nachronai ben Hachinai, who we don't really know anything about. Um, whose name is bandied about as someone who brought the Talmud. We have this letter um, that sent in the late, um, in in the, around the 10th in the 10th century, um, from Pompidita in Baghdad that tells us that Paltoygaon sent the sent Talmud no, and um, whatever that might mean, no one really knows the Talmud and its explanation. No one really knows what that means. Um, but that would date Jewish learning to the 9th century. And then we that same letter tells us that you know there were many, many, so many donkeys couldn't even carry all the chuvot that were connected between Baghdad and. Um, and Al-Andalus, but these are all really hard to know that much about and really to be able to clarify. Uh, only in the, the ninth, and early 10th century do we get, get more figures. Uh, Perkwet Ben-Bavoy, who's a polemicist writing from Baghdad, tells us that there's Jewish learning in Spain. He talks about, you know, Midrashot in the ninth century. And we have this other figure named Elazar um, Bar-Shmuel, whose name appears a little bit in Gaonic literature, um, as someone who made an impression on certain Go'onim, but we don't know much about these guys. Um, a little bit later, we actually get some more some more detail, and that might be also from these two vote from the Gonim. So that is, the Go'onim would correspond with Jewish communities throughout the Mediterranean, sending them questions, um, send, the Mediterranean communities would send them questions, and the Go'onim would respond um, with answers, and also obviously um, asking for a little uh, donation along the way. Um, so we have a bunch of these two votes. The most famous of them is actually the Seder of Amram Go'on, which is allegedly sent to uh, to Barcelona, um, although the history of that work is very, very complicated. Um but we have those sort of texts as well that would tell us that there is some sort of Jewish learning going on. Um, and some of these questions, you know, it, the question is how do you, what can you tell about the communities based on these on these questions? So on the one hand, we have, you know, sometimes we have very simple questions, you know, very basic question. Tell me what, you know, what I'm supposed to pray. That's a rather rudimentary question. Other times they're, they get more advanced. So you can sort of infer from the questions that are asked a little bit about the community. I mean, it's not really until the late 10th century that we get, you know, major figures or figures who have some sort of lasting impact even a little bit on halakhic, the halakhic tradition. And they all sort of circle around this, this figure named Chasta ibn Shaprut. Khasta ibn Shaprut is a um, very important courtier with the Umayyads, who were the local Muslim dynasty um, in the late 10th century. Uh, and he, as part of this sort of program to advance um, Sephardic community and learning, brought in a bunch of uh, some figures. The, mo- the people, the person we're told that he brought in is a figure named Moshe ben Hanuch. Um And Moshe ben Hanukh and his son, Hanukh ben Moshe, from Italy, become the first really to lead the centers of Jewish learning in Spain. Um, we actually have some vote from them. So this tells us that they were, you know, figures of some stature. They knew how to they say, knew how to learn. They knew how to write responsa. They were authorities. And um, these two vote, if any listener, this is going to be another running theme, I guess, throughout the episode today. And um, these two wrote are like, have not really been systematically studied in almost a century. Um, there's one article from Simcha Asaf written, you know, decades and decades ago where he talks about them. Um, but they're really waiting. Someone should go through them and really tell the, tell us more systematically what we can have about them. But what scholars infer about the selection of this guy, Moshe ben Chanoch from Spain, from Italy into Spain, is that he, Chastai in his circle, was pushing back against Gaonic authority and Babylonian authority. And this um, is another running theme we'll see throughout you know, the 11th to 12th centuries. This real tension, even after the Gaonim are basically out of the picture, Banish uh, Andalusian um, halakhic authorities are concerned with Gonic authority, and Khastai begins that as well. And there's one other sort of interesting data point here: um, is that there's a report from an Arabic, uh, an Arabic uh, Muslim author who says that tells us that in this in this era, Jews around Hasnai sort of decided they could make their own calendar, they could calculate the calendar on their own. Which we don't really know how to verify that, but it sounds like something Khastai would do, right? All this sort of fits into this picture of like putting. Barad on the map and becoming independent of of the of the gaonim, but in terms of the caliber, in terms of the content of their learning, it's very very difficult to talk about um, in much detail. Really, until the until the turn of the millennium, um, with you know the next generation
0: of figures. Okay, so Chazda even Shapur is he's in the tenth century, right? Mm-hmm. He died um, around nine seventy five. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so a, a couple of things to just unpack there before before we move on. So Chazda himself um, in. Listeners will have heard he was like a poet, things with uh, R- Professor Brand's uh, po- episode. But do we know anything was he himself, a Atamukhacha, of any repute? Do we know anything so, about that?
1: There's no reason to, to believe that he was. Um, he had a uh, – he received the title Rosh Kala, which means head of the academy, head of the road, something like that, from the um, – apparently from one of the Go'onik academies. But the Go'onik would give out these titles not based on sort of expertise or learning, but really because they wanted to honor um, and fundraise from local elites. So there's we don't know, there's no reason to believe that he was a Talmudist or a Halafist of any of any stature.
0: Okay. And like you said, originally, you know, we have with the Vamram going, originally they were everything from everything or whatever we know, they were kind of under Babylonian authority, asking questions, getting answers. So then it begins to change. And when it begins to change is when we kind of start to see whether that's when it began or not, we really begin to see kind of the growth or I don't know how you want to, where do you want to use, of the Spanish, you know, Talmudists, or again, Spanish. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, assume,
1: no, but... assuming that we can discount the early legends as sort of legend, legendary reports, um, it really it really seems that with Moshe ben Hanokh and Hanokh ben Moshe, there becomes like sort of some serious learning. Obviously, Chastai thought it was important, you know, to bring in people from um, outside to start a yeshiva. Um, but it wasn't, it certainly, we don't have any, reason to believe there was much more going on before the late 10th century.
0: Okay. So let's, the first, now you said he brought in these uh, from Italy, but what about the first, you know, again, I don't know the right word is to use Spanish. And one more thing before that, we're, we're, let's just tell the listeners where we're holding it. We had these kind of overview episodes here. Where, Which part of the Iberian yes. Peninsula are we really talking about? Yeah.
1: Here? So most of these figures are living in Cordoba and Lucena. So Lucena is sort of famously the city of the Jews. It's called Probably means it had a very large proportion of Jewish population, and Cordoba is the other major center. Obviously, the Rambam much later, but other figures are sort of bouncing around that part of Granada and other
0: related nearby areas. Okay, so the first figure is Rabbi Shmuel Nagid. Is he the kind of the first?
1: Yeah, so Shmuel Nagid is really the major, the first serious halakhic writings other than these two vote from uh, from Tanof Ben Moshe and his father Moshe.
0: Okay, so again, his. You know, poetry aside, the him that way I we dealt we dealt with previously. Again, referring listeners back. I'll keep doing that. I keep referring you back when there's something in the previous episode with Professor Brand. So now with him, though, on, well, we can just you can just recap though briefly. You know, he was a general and briefly his position. He was kind yeah, of. I mean, the, the,
1: that's the story, right? That he he uh, he was a he was a poet of some grandeur, and he lost after you know he lost his family fortune when around age 20 uh, was sort of caught in a bind when he was discovered by the you know one of the local, um, what are known as in English as party kings of the kingdom of Granada, where he became a military leader for this community. Oh, how much of the details of his early life are very, very difficult to, to know how much we can trust. He apparently was a student of um, Judah Hayyuj, who's a major figure in Hebrew grammar, and also Chanoch um, ben Moshe, the son of our first Rosh Hashiva in, in Al-Andalus, um, in Halakha. So that sort of seems to be his connection. And he does, quote, um, every once in a while, we have quotations from him, quote, you know, referring back to stuff he learned from Chanoch ben Moshe.
0: Okay, so what about his writing? What writings do we have from him?
1: Yeah, so uh, we were talking before, the first thing you, we should mention um, is that the, the major work that people associate with Shmuel HaNagid is actually not by this Shmuel HaNagid. The, um, if you, anyone opens a you know, Gemara Barachot, at the, the end, you'll see a Mavola Talmud, or Mavola Talmud, whatever it's called there, um, of, it says the same name, Shmuel HaNagid. So that actually is a translation um, of a summary of the introduction to the Talmud by Shmuel Ben-Chafnigon, um, written, you know, written a, a few decades, um, or I guess around this time, maybe a little bit older than Shmuel HaNagid. Um and this translation made its way um, as these things do into into the into the Babylonian Talmud. So the major work we have from him in Halakha, or have pieces of or citations of, is called the Hilchot Gavrata, which is a complicated work that we don't really know what it, what it is. Um, I, another running theme is that we don't really know so much of this with certainty. And um, there was a debate in the 20th century between two important scholars. Um, about you know, just how all-encompassing this work was—was was it about every single area of halakha, sort of the way we think of the Rambam, or and this seems more likely—was um, it just focused on difficult passages in the Bavli um, that it that is it, like dealt with, you know, hard suyot, but not really um, all-encompassing commentary uh, the way the way we uh, the, the way we sort of see later. And this work was apparently written in both Hebrew and Judeo Arabic. That sort of Arabic in Hebrew characters, and um, and so and like many of the works, actually in the 11th century, there's several works that were both written in Hebrew and Judeo Arabic. Um, we also have a few Chuvot. Um, some of them are printed in uh, the Per by published by first by <laughs> Jacob Sosportas. Um, but the and there's a few more that, that are manuscript, but very few have survived. So the major work really is this. Um, is this that was compiled by, by Margoliot um, in the 20th century? And um, and mostly we don't have original copies of this work. Mostly we what we have are later citations in mostly Spanish rishonim. So um, the Ramban quotes him a number of times, and other figures quote him um, quote this work. And so that's how we're able to reconstruct the sort of basics of this work. Um, and the truth is, we you know we don't because we don't know so much about it, and um, we can't really say a whole lot. Other than every once in a while, and controversially, he went out and attacked uh, no less a figure than Haigon. Right, this is the you know the major um, Gaon, an older figure than than uh, Shmohan Agid. Um, but nevertheless, he attacked him in writing, um, and he attacked other uh, other Gaonic positions. The most famous one, this one is actually um, quoted. You know, everyone. This is something everyone does today, which is that in Rosh Hashanah, everyone will daven in, and in, and in, in most of nine brachot. Right, everyone says you know Malcolm wrote in the in Rosh the silence one and in the public one esrei. This actually was not the practice of the GONIM. The GONIM said in the private one ray people would say seven, and um, and the the tradition that we have to say nine actually dates back to the Nagid apparently from this work. Um, so, in uh, a, a figure, we'll meet in a, in a few minutes. Quotes Shmuel Agid on this position, who's quoting already back earlier figures on this very, you know. So that's one area in Halakha. And you know, everyone practices that. Everyone, I don't know anybody who's encountered a community that says seven, and most in, uh, in, in the private Shmona Sre. And so that's something that uh, is dated to Shmuel Agid. But in terms of the full scope of this work, in terms of its full contents, it's really quite difficult um, to know to know so much about it.
0: Now, just, just a little bit. One more thing about this work. Is this work uh, like halachic work or like a Talmudic work? i say I know we're before we're pre-Rambam, we're pre rif So like, there's like no, there's not really that fine distinction of like a halacha say, for a Talmudic. Yeah,
1: and so from the citations, yeah. it seems to be sort of finding the psak halacha and sometimes dealing with Talmudic analysis. Um, right? There's this impression that the um, that the you know Sfardim or that the early Sfardim for some reason were very interested in psak. I mean, you know, in, in practical law. And I, I'm not sure how true that, that is, um, you know, as a as a characterization, but they were also um interested in this species in this work and the citations of this work that you know clearly in some you know analysis of hard sugyot. So that's something that um so it's sort of it's both.
0: Okay. And and the then, other, yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, the other last piece of of, of Shmonagi is here that's this, you know, you really see um the role of this push against the Goonim. Um, And this, you know, aggrandization of Sfarad coming hand in hand, right? Shmuel Nagid is the, you know, more than Chasta Ibn Shepar, more than anyone after him, um, is the most sort of biggest propagandist for for Sfarad. Um, And it comes out and manifests itself in his halachic writings, again, pushing against the Goniim and upholding his own, you know, teachers, uh, Moshe ben Chanoch and his son, Chanoch ben Moshe.
0: Yeah. Now... You said he had a yeshiva and what, what, what either, tell me them, did he have or what kind of figures were in the yeshiva or around his time?
1: Right. It's difficult to know. So we, we don't know exactly who, who's, who was his student. And um, there are some, a few figures that are sort of interesting um, in this period in the you know, early part of the 10th century and um, that we don't know so much about. So the one, uh, uh, I jotted down a couple figures figures um, here to the first one that, that um, is maybe a little bit more well known. and um, is an important parshan in Hudaib Right, he died in the around, around the 1070s, so he's probably a little bit younger, um, or or take, than Shmuel Hanagid. And um, we don't actually know to the extent that he was a Talmudist, nor if he had any relationship with with Shmuel Um, but he also sort of reflects ideas that are anti-Gaonic which would speak to this circle. Um, but there's one other, one other very, very interesting and important figure. Um, in this period and that's um uh, David bin Sadia Hager. um so this is a he this is a figure that you know um, maybe 30 40 years ago we knew very very little about and um, his name appears in the Mukubetset, um maybe in a couple other a couple other places we have a chufa from Abraham um, and but we don't really know so much about it until um in the past few decades two scholars in Israel David Sklare and um and Found and published a number of pieces from this from this very very important Halakhic compendium, um, and this figure, um, David Ben Sadia Hager, maybe Ibn al muhajir There's some debate about how to um, how to pronounce his you know his last his, his father's um, patronym. Uh, uh, apparently lived in the in Granada, and he was lived in the circle of the Nagid. Um, we don't really know so much about him. David Sclar thinks that uh, he found a poem of the Nagid that might be talking about. Um, about this figure, which is entirely possible, um, it could be that his father converted. We really, really don't know much about his personal life. Um, other than he wrote this, he wrote a few important works. One is the Mishpat Shvuot. If anyone's ever learned Misakat um, Shavuot, you know, in the back there's um, ascribed to the I think it's that work ascribed to the Rift or maybe someone else, depending on the printings. Um, this work on the Laws of Shvuot, which actually was written um, by this figure. Um, and this very, this more important um Judeo-Arabic and Hebrew work called the Kitab al-Khawi which is a um translate that means like a safer Kolel or the sort of all-encompassing Halakhic compendium. Um this is a fascinating fascinating work. It's apparently a handbook for judges um that addressed a lot of different um Halakhic topics. Um, there's a lot of divorce, there's lots of the festivals, um, but most interesting perhaps and this is really um quite unique until the, between the Gaonim and the Rambam, he's the only person that really does this at great length, is he writes about legal theory. And he's very interested in sort of the sources of the law. He writes a lengthy commentary on the 13 Midot of Rabbi Ishmael, right? He criticizes um Gedolot at some length. And so this seems to have been a very important halakhic work. We don't have a lot of it um, for the whole thing. And as far as you know, um, a publication of this work is forthcoming.
0: Okay. Very fascinating. That, that's very, very interesting. So, the next kind of figure I guess to discuss is one that uh, we you have to really. We we have to talk about his name. I don't, want to get to, I don't want to get bogged down. I, you know, I remember when I had the episode with uh, Yaakov Jakob you know, we we're busy with it. Bachya, Bachaya, you know, I don't want to be busy with that type of thing. But in the Yeshiva world he's known as the Ritz Gaius, but his name was uh Gayat, Giat, his name wasn't G- G- Yeah, sure. Giat, maybe right. Giyat, right, right yeah, right. Something I can so talk about his name, the proper pronunciation. But <laughs> so, just, uh, just, just so for everyone, a, we're talking <laughs> Ritz Gaius, so they should know who we're talking about, because in the Yeshiva world they do know of him.
1: Yeah, so certainly he's a figure that people know about. Um, he's a very important Talmudist. Also, in we're well, now we're getting into the eleventh century. And um, he was uh, headed a yeshiva in Lucena. And um, he died around the year 1089. Um, and as if you look in this sort of standard reference works, they'll give you usually the name Ghiat, G H um, at the beginning or Riat something like that. Um, and in the yeshiva world, for whatever reason, I guess it's easier to pronounce. As far as I know, he's, he's called the Ritz Gaius, uh, which is a little bit easier pronunciation.
0: Exactly. Okay, so let's talk about him uh, a little bit. Yeah. So he um, is also one of these, like
1: another very, very interesting um, and incredibly diverse um, Sfar uh, Rishon. Right. What and um, you know, with all these figures um, and many of the figures we've met so far, they specialize. They didn't specialize in one sort of area. They dabbled in theology, in philosophy, in poetry, um, and in Halakha, Sometimes in parshanut. Right. So. um, he obviously, I mean, I'm sure Professor Brand spoke about um, his very important poetry, Um, he's lauded as sort of one of the famous five Isaacs um, by Ibn Daoud, um, writing about a century later. Um, he apparently was a Neoplatonist of some um, some caliber, uh, and who may have had you know, there's some debate about this. Some of the figures claim that he had a relationship with the Nagi. Other people um, think of, assert that he. It seems like he didn't have such a close relationship with him. He doesn't cite him all that often. Either way, that seems to be his sort of basic background. He's in this world in heading yeshiva in Musena, and um, a very important yeshiva that um, that the riff would would eventually take over. And um, his major, he, there's sort of a few major, outside of his poetry, um, a few major works. He wrote a, a very, very lengthy commentary on Kohelet. And um, if you actually open um, Pafech's uh, Chamesh Megilot, which is available on Hebrew books. So he published um, this commentary, ascribed it to Sadia, um, but that apparently is a very old mistake. And it was certainly not written by Sadia. It was written by our figure Ibn Ibn Riyat, and uh, whoever will pronounce that. And yeah, there's a there are later reports of him writing a lot. Um, Moshe Moshe Ibn Ezra, an important poetry Abraham uh, Ben Abraham Ben Rambam, the Miri all talk about him writing a ton. We don't actually have um, that much from him. It's not clear even how much they saw. And there's a if you look in Hebrew books, you'll find some other um, material ascribed to him. We also even have a you know this was a very Popular genre, a halakhic poem. Um, in this case, he wrote on um, on hilchot tefillin. Right, he wrote on the laws of tefillin. He wrote the basic background, um, you know, in poetic form, which is a very popular genre in the medieval in the medieval world. So,
0: yeah, I want, yeah to so ask, I want to ask about shari simcha. That uh, yeah, so there's, 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 the so, there's, so there's
1: two major. And um, there's two major um, halachic works that he wrote. Um, one is the Shari Simcha, which is, a, I think, a, as far as I know, is a book that was given much late, a title that was given later. Um, according to the Geniza book list, this work is called Halachot Kulot, right, which apparently means sort of all encompassing. We only have um, the, the, the parts on, on the Chagim um, and a, a dis, uh, separate, separately printed discussion of um, Hilkhot Pesach. Um, but it's sort of an interesting hodgepodge work, something of an um compendium, let's say. Um, Ibirriyad quotes a ton of the Go- of Gaonic writings. This is a major source of Gaonic positions. Um, and in that, just by doing that, he seems already to be moving away a little bit from Nagi. That is, he um, would was much more respectful and interested in going positions apparently than the Nagid Nag- was and the Nag- and even um, and figures around him apparently even produced some of the very important uh collections of gonic to that were printed um you know that we that we have. so it seems like a lot of those have their roots originally in spanish collections of gonic responsa and um, and so sometimes in this work in what's pr- printed as Shari simcha uh, the author will compare the nagid with the gonic ber- the um with Gaonic positions, he'll sort of give a whole summary of you know halachic literature. Also, very interested in um, in halachic in in halachic conclusions, you know, in psak halacha. And um, he also wrote this book that's known in Hebrew as a Sefer Haner, um, which apparently was a commentary on the Talmud. And um, there's some debate exactly how all-encompassing it was. Um, Yisrael Meir Tashma thought it really covered the whole Talmud. Um, other people are less convinced. This apparently also was written both in Hebrew and Arabic um, and was cited um, in a number of different, uh, a different number of later Rishonim. Um There was a recent public, relatively recent publication from a colleague um, named Dan Greenberger um, in Ginze Kadem who published some pieces of this work. And um, again, we don't really know so much about it. Was this a full on you know, commentary, the way we think of later, you know, the Ritzvah and the Ran, or was this also, and this seems more likely, although it's hard to really know, um, just sort of on difficult uh, Talmudic passages again. So we have this in, another sort of, um, this Sefer and Air seems to have been probably, was on sort of hard topics, you know, complicated sugyot. let's say. Um, that's sort of um, the Ritzvah in a nutshell of his major Halakhic contributions.
0: So uh, yeah, I wanna mention, so Shari Simcha, so I... I think was it originally published by Werspergerov Rebizch David uh, Bamberger?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can again, you can find all this. Information. It's very easily accessible on Hebrew books. Um, yeah, all the on, yeah, yeah. His is on Hebrew books
0: in 1860. He published it. He calls a Shari Simchov of Nikrogam Gam and he says he commentary Yischok Yiranin. This is Rebizch David Levi Bamberger. I did a podcast on the Werspergerov, and he there's actually a I think there's a new edition. It's like I don't know 30 40 years old from Machon Chassam I think that's who did it. It's like two blue volumes, like two volumes. So, but this is you know, like you said, a relative. Famously famous work. Now um, we're going to talk about the riff shortly, musical Uh, You know how could we not? One of the but before that, yeah, I want I would just want to want to ask you about his relationship. Was there a relationship between the ritz Ritzgais and him? And you know, or you could leave that first and talk about first any any other pre-riff yeah. figures. Yeah, so there's, there's one. I was, well, maybe we'll
1: discuss uh, against the mission, but we'll talk about the second question first. Uh, the, the 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 one other figure sort of in this circle. Um, was Yitzchak ben Baruch al Balia, um, who apparently was related to Ibn Daud through um, uh, his father's side, um, the author of the Sefer Kabbalah. So we know a lot about him. He wrote this work called Kupata Rochlim, according to Ibn Daud. Doesn't survive at all. Apparently was on um, also on hard Talmudic passages. What does survive from him um, is, or past citations of, is this work on the Jewish calendar. Right? If you look in um, Avram Barhiya and Yisraeli, Israeli Alam and Sefer Ibura Barhiya and you see citations from this work on you know this rather intricate um, topic of how to how to determine the Jewish calendar so this is a um, interesting work that survived um, and it was quoted later and um, which in and and like uh Ibn Fiyat and um, Albaliya apparently was a prominent figure um, and when the rift showed up in Spain in 1088, and um, he got the Rif got in a number of battles with some local authorities, and um, one of whom was Ibn Ghiat, the Another one was Al Balia. Um, Dan Greenberger published this was known for a long time, but Dan Greenberger actually published some of this debate that the Rif had with Yitzhak Al Balia, um, and the other person the Rif criticized was an earlier uh, Spanish rishon, um, David Mitzadia Hager, and um, who we. Uh, who we mentioned earlier, um, and that was a you know he criticized him at, 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 quite harshly in the two vote in in, in the two vote, uh, and it seems to be something of the rift sort of becoming coming into his own and sort of taking on local authorities. So that was the beginning of you know a major shift I think in the Halakhic traditions that we can really trace from the nāgīd uh, through you know these figures into the middle of the eleventh century, and by the by the late eleventh century in 1088 when the rift shows up, right there's he's pushing back and very hard against local traditions, and in doing battle with some of these some of these figures.
0: Okay, so first of all, you mentioned uh, Ibn daud a, b- a bunch of times. So Ibn Dawud was the uh, Sefer Kabbalah, which is not a Kabbalistic work, it's a historical work, and uh, he also wrote Emun Harama, which is a um, philosophical work. So Munarama there's Two new editions of the past couple of years in Sefer Kabbalah. There's an English edition. Just mentioning him. We're not, we're not discussing kind of, uh, philosopher historians, but, uh, yeah. Okay. Let's go to the riff who, you know, we were talking beforehand and you said, you know, I did an episode a while back with, uh, Dr. Ezra Shvat on the riff who, by the way, I will say that Mahon Hamar finally printed their Shas and inside of the Shas is the critical edition of the riff, of Shvat's riff. It's also accessible on alaterra.org for anyone who wants to see a critical edition of the riff. Anyways, so more in depth on the riff, refer back to that episode. But to talk a little bit about the riff here, and especially in the context of pre-riff figures, riff, post-riff figures in Spain, I'll uh, leave it to you.
1: Yeah, so I the, mean, the, the riff I mentioned, he, he shows up in 1088. He's already an old man by this time. Um, he I mean, he's already about 75. Um, you know, bringing with him these North African traditions. You know, he probably wasn't a student of Benichananel, but he certainly was in that world, um, and was very conversant with North African Hala-h- traditions, which were different um, somewhat, you know, than the Spanish ones, than the ones in Sparad. I mean, this caused him to do and uh, to, to come to, you know, battle with some local figures. Um, you know, he, well, I think it's quite significant um, that he criticized, for example, David ben Sadia for not relying on the Gaunim, which might be sort of a, tell us something about, uh, about, you know, how the Rift thought these earlier figures, sort of stuck, stack up versus uh, versus the and um, He moves initially to Cordoba and then to Lucena. Um, and even though he did battle with some of the locals, um, uh, Shalomi Alom has actually shown that in certain places, um, the rift changed his mind and incorporated you know, Sephardic halakhic rulings in in, the, in his halakho. So he is very interested in, in Spanish thought and he becomes this major figure in Spain. And his own attitude towards the Gaonim is uh, complex. And it's something that's still um, waiting to be studied. You know, it's been studied a good good amount, but there's probably much more to be done. Um, But he becomes the Rosh Hashiva in Lucena and and becomes a major figure, right? Obviously, um, he's celebrated by later generations. And and certainly in Sfarad, this begins very quickly. Moshe ibn Ezra, a poet, um, our our friend Avraham ibn Da'ud, are very celebratory of, of him, obviously, the Rambam. Um and the story goes that he had this very important Talmud, um Ibn Migash, uh who was his who was his student, and who he studied with him for 13 years, who he actually passes he passes over his own son, Yaakov, to place um uh Ibn Migash in as the as a Rosh Shiva in Lucena.
0: And we're gonna get to uh Ibn Migash. So, the rif, as you said, he was from Morocco, i said he was North African he comes at the end of his life, He. Whatever the story is, he's chased out of there and he ends up in Spain. So when does he write his magnum opus, his halacha, his, you know, hilchas, uh, you know, Fassi, Hilchus riff. And, and does that, in, so does he incorporate, you know, Spanish versus his North African teachings in there?
1: Yeah, so it seems like he, I mean, he's 75 years old, so I would think he would have accomplished most of his work by then, um, I would hope. And, but he, and he does include certain, It's clearly comes with it, uh, I guess, as a more or less finished work, but apparently he wasn't somebody who uh, thought things was finished and he was constantly updating and tinkering with it. And he does include an um, important Spanish rulings, you know, halakhic right. positions, um, you know, practices in this, in this work as well.
0: Okay. And you already mentioned his yeshiva. I don't know if you have anything else to say about his yeshiva or his works, or we should move on to the rimagash. Yeah, Migash. I mean,
1: the, the rimagash is another, obviously a very very important figure go ahead sure so the uh so the Rimigash some people think it's uh pronounced migas that's a question that might not be able to be answered um apparently was born around 1077 died in 1141 and we know from Ibn Daud that he studied for you know he learned a long time um with the Riff um and there's some indications that he had some interest in you know non-Talmudic topics, but really, um, his co- major contribution was in halacha. And, um, you know, he, pa- he took over for the Rif, he uh, replaced his own son, um, and he was a major figure who was incredibly influential, and it's very, very difficult to talk about the Rimigash Gash, and to think about him without these sort of ma- massive compliments. Ibn Da'ud said he had a lev rafav, and the Rambam, in the introduction to the Parish HaMishnah, you know, talks about this you know, figure, and you know, the Rambam was not somebody to give out compliments, you know, willy-nilly, let's say. Um, and he Heaps praise on the Rimigash you know, endlessly, um, and the you know, the Rambam's father, Maimun, was a student of the, of the Rimigash and the Rambam had a lot of traditions from the Rimigash and and he very much respects him, and he tells us, and you know, that tells us something. I think um, what the Rambam saw in him tells us something a lot about about him about who the Rimigash was. Um, right, and when the Rambam, you know, is constantly whenever the Rambam refers to, um, you know, Svardi Gonim or and, you know, Andalus, Andalus, Andalusian goonim or something like that, he's almost always or very often referring to the Rimigash. And, um, you know, and every time, let's say, we have a writing through the Rimigash, the Rambam is constantly dealing with it. Uh, so the Rimigash was an important work, important thinker, um, who we have actually very, very little from. And um, we don't know how much he wrote on Tashmat, thinks maybe on seven Meseftot, some of which apparently written in Arabic. But very very early on, um, his commentaries on Baabatra and Shuod are the only ones that are that are cited. Those are the ones um, that were not written in Arabic. Hashma suggests that the reason they were lost is because they were in Arabic. Although it's quite difficult to know. And we in the in the Shidim Gubetzet in Bavbacher, he, um, he quotes the Tzalash quotes the all the time. And he also wrote apparently this this book called Migilat Starim, um, which is a popular title in the medieval world. Um, that no one really knows what, what its contents were. Some say it was on the Rift, maybe it was on to sukyot, and no one knows because um, we don't really have much from it. Uh, and then we have um, these two votes um, that were apparently largely written in Arabic um, and translated later, translated into Hebrew. And those are sort of his major books and contributions to the uh, to the Jewish library. Um, the Gash is a you know totally independent thinker uh, and is known for a lot of different a lot of different features. I'll just try and talk about a few of them that are perhaps of interest. Um, the first is that, you know, he's obviously very respectful of the Ga'onim, respectful of Rabbi Chananel, and his teacher the Rif. but he's in no way subservient to them. Um, it's a little bit of a debate among the scholars, but I think it's fairly clear that Rumi Gash saw himself as an authority and was willing to, you know, go against and um, receive tradition in Halakha when he saw fit. Right? If he thought that a, uh, a Halakha you know Psak was wrong or conclusion of it the way to read a Silgya was wrong. Um, he said so. And he disagreed even with the Riff and obviously uh, other figures as well. Um, apparently he was the first to in Svarad, to know of Rashi. Um, Amir Ashur published a, a manuscript reference from the Rimigash that mentions Rashi. Um, apparently this you know by this time it had uh, trickled down um to Svarad. Um, and the other major feature I think of his writings and this is something also that requires uh, more study so I'll sort of just touch on it. Um, here is that the R- Rimigash seems to have like been a big conceptualist, or like Alamdin, right? He was a he, he was a conceptual thinker, and this becomes anyone who's ever learned you know of, of a bachar, a, Bacha or a Shavuot, you get the sense that the Rimigash is really you know almost prefiguring Brisk in certain ways in his conceptual ways of thinking, um, and you know when the, even the Otehi Levrachav, which means like you know wide heart, wide brain, or you know incredible mind, and um, I think that might be what they have in mind that he has. Um, a real conceptual way of approaching uh, pro- approaching uh Sugyot in a way that seems to be a real breakthrough uh certainly in Svarad, if not you know altogether um yeah the other major in- sort of interesting thing um in in the Rimigash is this question about about um how he related to the go there's a sort of debate in the uh in the scholars but you know how much he diverged from the go when he thought he wouldn't there's a, there's a famous and Chuvath- from the Remigash uh, number uh, 114, where he says, you know, everyone should rely on the Go'onim. They're in Beit Din Gadol Mumchal rabim. They're experts um, in Halafic authority. But when it comes to his own practice, it really seems like he feels free to reject re- reject the go'nim when he thought that, you know, when he, when he saw fit. And it seems more likely that this sort of debate about how much to rely on the Go'onim is sort of something that dates, dates back to the time of the Nagid and sort of continued on through um, the Rimigash uh, and really is a sort of running thread throughout the, this, these centuries in Sephardic history. Uh, and the Rimigash himself sort of is on the side of the Gonim, but when it comes, you know, when the rubber hit the road, when he needed to, you know, paskin, if he wanted to do so against the Gonim, he did so, um, He he would do so.
0: So um, a couple things about him. Uh, first of all, you mentioned his, his, uh, chuvos, which we have, Machon Yer Shalayim, did a uh, brand new beautiful edition. I should mention the riff also. I think we forgot to mention they also new edition of the Riff Chuvas as well. Um, so any validity to the story? There's some sort of, you know, legend with the, the Rambam, meaning the Rimigash gets a kiss. What was this story? So
1: the, the, oh, it's a story that circulates. It doesn't, yeah. um, it doesn't make sense chronologically. The, the Rimi died apparently in 1141. The Rambam was, must've been three years old. Um, you know, According to most people, who's born eleven thirty eight, so certainly, I mean, he's probably a, a you know, at some point at of some you know stature. Obviously, the Rambam was. I'm not sure how much that manifested at age three, um, but so they you know they didn't really know each other. All the Rimigash material comes apparently from the Rambam's father, um, who must have been you know a close Talmud of, of the Rimigash.
0: Right, which is why I guess the Rambam is referred to sometimes as like a Talmud of the Rimigash because you know that's how we refers to him as. So generally, if we see an opinion of the Rimigash, the Rambam kind of. Generally, but the Rambam goes to the Rimmigash.
1: Yeah, I mean, I haven't done a systematic study. My experience is that, you know, every time the Rimmigash says something to the Ramam that, you know, the Ramam was aware of, he certainly um, takes it seriously. Often, well, you know, possibly like that against other Rishonim. Um, right. The Rambam, you know, in terms of the Talmud, you know, there was no you know Talmud, you know, Rebbe relationship, apparently. But in terms of the Al-Lahic traditions and, uh, and perhaps more, the Rambam is certainly in that world.
0: Okay, now, at the time period that we're holding right now, we're kind of skipping around, we're in the 11th to the 12th century, um, so we are omitting, we're kind of not discussing Rudalevi, the Kuzuri, right, the Ibn Ezra, uh, Rabachiy Ibn Bakuda, right, is the uh, so we yeah, have so, other, the other figures yeah, here that so, we're not kind of doing.
1: Yeah, so each of those figures, you know, in various ways were, you know, Hamidists of some, uh, you know, in different ways. Rudalevi does have halachic positions, the Dateline is a major, you know, Famous thing that he talks about. There are other issues that come up, and um, Bahia, much less so, and Ibn Ezra. You know, while he was, you know, clearly an expert, doesn't seem to have been. Um, you know, certainly didn't focus on that, and sometimes you know, misquotes Chazal, um, and so that sort of led people to think that maybe he didn't wasn't quite as an uh, expert um, as compared to other of his colleagues. Um, so they, those you know figures. I mean, the, uh, you know, Levy, for example, was it was apparently had a close relationship with Rimagash, but he didn't excel um, obviously in halachic material
0: right correct okay so what other figures slash works do we have from this time period
1: yeah so there's one other work that um apparently comes out from this circle and um, this anonymous work um, called the isra veheter and um, that it survives we apparently there's two different manuscripts of pieces of it and it was we don't really know much, we don't, we're only now learning about it, although it has been accessible, I think it's a a manuscript in Oxford, and Professor Svi Langerman has been publishing chapters of this, um, this work. As far as we know, the largest manuscript contains chapters 17 to 51, so it's apparently smack in the middle of this, this work. Based on the citations, um, Professor Langerman suggests that it's probably somewhere, because the author cites the riff and cites the Rimigash, but not the Rambam. So, you know, if the Rambam existed, you would cite the Rambam, so must be that this figure apparently was living in the generation of the students of the Rimigash before the Rambam, you know, was uh, was active. Um, there are some pieces that are halakhic in this book. There's some sort of halakhic summaries of Hilchot Rosh Chodesh, other um, areas of Jewish law. Uh, there's other times that he sort of express, writes commentaries on the Mishnah. He cites the Gonim. It's sort of one of these hodgepodge um, works. Bef- that uh, that typifies a lot of the Spartac writing, maybe dates further that reminds us more about what the Nagid and ritz Gaius wrote, even if he So this is a work that still requires a lot of careful study. Langerman apparently is working hard on publishing more of it, um, but I, I'm sure would, you know, calls for, for much more attention and analysis.
0: Yeah, I think what's interesting about this is, and I mentioned this to you, to you before we started recording is that kind of you, you almost feel like when we get to Christian Spain which we're not going to discuss, you almost feel like there's more maybe it's later we have more preserved, there's more that we're used to dealing with, right? With the Ramban the Rajba, the Ran, the the, the the Yasef, the Ritva, the Yad Ramah, Rabbeinu Yain. I mean if you go on and on and on of you know. I'm sure I'm missing many more of Talmudists or Halakhists um, as opposed to Muslim Spain however with Muslim Spain you kind of have these titans really that we're still dealing with today which is the Rif uh, the Rimagash, the Ritzkei, and, and and the Rambam. I mean, you have these, like, major figures. Although the interesting thing is, and we have to talk about the Rambam a little bit here, is, like, the two most major ones, so to speak, because, like, the Riff is mainly in North Africa, and he ends up coming to Spain at the end. And the Rambam is from Spain, and then he leaves, and he ends up in Egypt later where he writes his works. So it's, like, interesting how the two major ones are, like, part of Muslim Spain, but they're, like, not. Um, right. It's just an interesting thing.
1: Yeah, if anybody, I mean, the Rambam certainly saw himself as, you know, Hasvardi, uh, much more than probably the Riff ever did. And the Ramam is very, very proud of, you know, being the descendants of, you know, generations of Talmudic Chachamim and Dayanim and, uh, in Spain. Um so, yeah, he's he's very, very proud of this. And it's totally in dialogue with these with earlier figures.
0: Yeah. And I will, we'll get back to a little bit discussing the distinction between Muslim and Christian Spain, because, as I mentioned, those different Gudelem and the Ramban and Rajban, you know, the beginning ones. And then, as I mentioned, Ramran and Mukhi etc. You know, I think today in the Yeshiva world or wherever it is, people have this kind of conception of like, they're all Sfardi, they're all Spanish, but that's like, Really wrong because they were they're different cultural use different worlds totally. One is Muslim Spain they're into philosophy poetry etc. Under the Muslims and the other one is in Christian Spain they're not into any of poetry. There's no poetry. There's no philosophy. There's none of this. We have Kabbalah coming out. It's a totally different world. And so they're they're you know, We can talk about that. I don't know it now or we should get to the Rambam first. But anyways,
1: yeah. Well, let's cover the Rambam first. There is some poetry in later Spain, uh, but certainly not as central as as it was. Um, but yeah, but it's, uh, you're dealing with two different cultures. You know, Arabic is a major. Change here, um, exposure—you know—Islamic thinking versus Christian thinking. It's a very different, different world they're living in, um, politically, culturally, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But the the Rambam obviously deserves, you know, whole twenty-five part series um, on on its own. Um, But just a few things, sort of, just speaking that sort of connect the Rambam with the world that we talked about so far. Um, As I mentioned, the Rambam is always in dialogue with the, you know, earlier Sephardi Rishonim. Um, my experience has been, and I haven't, again, done a systematic study, but every single time an earlier Sephardi Rishon says something, the it sheds light on the Rambam. Right? The Rambam is totally, it doesn't tell us obviously, but his sources, but he's always very, very much in dialogue with earlier figures. And this is, you know, not just Halachic Hala- writers. Hala- you see this in um, the Parshanim. Nim, um, like even Baal and even the grammarians, the Rambam, even Janaf, we didn't talk about it at all. Uh, the Rambam is totally in dialogue with these figures. Um, and he is totally aware of Sephardic alakha, Sephardic parshanuts. And he's probably, I um, mean, this is another trend that you know goes back generations, he's probably more loyal to the Sephardic Rishonim than he is to the Gaonim, right? The Rambam was not so impressed by the title Gaon, um, the institution of the Gaonim. Um, he obviously was, you know, when it came to Haigaon, Sajigoon, um, Shurigon, and etc. He may he had more respect for them, but in terms of you know the institution, he he didn't think so highly of it. Uh, and he even used, and this is sort of subversive, uses the word go name to refer not just to people and authorities from Baghdad, right? By Applying this title much more broadly, the Rambam is telling us that you know there's nothing special about about Jewish Baghdad, uh, and this again I, I clearly comes from a tradition that dates back. Already the Ibn like how do the Sephardic Mishonim relate to the to the Gaonim? And the Rambam is coming out of this tradition very, very clearly. One other little tidbit: um, uh, Shlomo Dov Goitain pointed out that the uh, the Rambam taught his son Avram and Rambam to write in Sephardic uh, script. So the manuscripts from Avram and Ramam, um are in the Sephardic handwriting, apparently, of this time, not in the uh, whatever local Egyptian uh, handwriting. That that uh, perhaps the you know Abraham and Raman would have you know been taught in school.
0: Yeah, because it's interesting. People think of the Egyptians as Sfardim, but they're not. They're really not, right? They, the the after post expulsion, post 1492, later in this series, kind of the Sfardim spread out all over, and they become the dominant culture, and everything becomes Sfardim. But that, but before that, they're not really Sfardim. They're Egyptian Jews.
1: Yeah, I mean each each of these lo- local medieval sub communities has their own identity. Um, sort of the division to Ashkenaz and Sparat, I think probably only dates to, you know, the Mechaber and the Ramah, right? Once we have sort of the Mechaber versus the Ramah, then you see already the beginnings of two, you know, only two cultures. But each of these in, you know, the medieval world, Provence was its own culture, Germany, France, North Africa, et cetera, et cetera. Each of them had their own, you know, distinct local culture and dynamics and traditions that, um, you know, we don't, that today, you know, maybe people associate with Italy as sort of a unique place, but other places, you know, we sort of, as a Hodgepodge, but really, each of these places have their own identity, and you know, division of Ashkenaz and Sepharad is you know very something later and too simplistic way to think about the uh, medieval Jewish world.
0: So, as you say, the Rambam really deserves his own series, and uh, you know, hopefully, I'll get to that, Mirza Hashem. And if listeners want that, email me. Let me know. I think that's something that would require work, and but I think that Rambam really is deserving of such, and he's such a fascinating figure. I don't want to shortchange the Rambam here, but it's hard to do the Rambam like Auregalajas, just to like, oh, the Rambam, you know, n- not that it's easy to do any of the other figures we mentioned, but the Rambam's like, especially at least it feels, especially daunting to just in a couple of minutes. But at least in our context as a Sfardi and is part of this kind of Spanish world and this chain of Missouri, I mean, what else is there to say about the Rambam? Yeah, I
1: mean, the other thing, you know, he's clearly loyal to the Riff and the Rimigash. And it seems like he was more loyal to them than perhaps the earlier Spanish we shown him when it came to like you know halachic conclusions, um, and as I said, the Ramam saw himself as representative of this tradition. You know, he always talks about you know Al Andalus and Sfarad and you know the Minhagim and the halachic you know conclusions of this community, and um, were very important to him. Uh, and he you know and he, it even comes down to you know places in the uh, Parish Mishnah where he uses you know Spanish Arabic versus Egyptian Arabic, right? He's very aware of these of these things. And he's very, very loyal to that community. And he was an outsider when he got to Egypt and, you know, forgotten for a reason. But there were people who were opposed around him you know, as a foreign interloper in the Egyptian Jewish community. Um, and partly because he was a, you know, he was so clearly a, a Spartac Jew and he probably, sp- you know, spoke with an accent and, you know, different dialect of Arabic somewhat um, than the local Egyptian community.
0: So um, a couple other, you know, more uh, general things. First of all, just before that, we're, we're kind of up to the Rambam. We're up to kind of, I don't know where we're holding, you know, here in the 13th century Reconquista. begin. I mean, it's always going on in the background. I mean, where? are there any other later figures that you would add in, like from Muslim Spain, Talmud, Salachic figures?
1: Not really. Um, we have, you know, the Jewish community is, you know, were apparently persecuted um, quite harshly by uh, the Almohad dynasty. that came in and, and conquered Spain from the Almoravid, Almoravid dynasty, and um, who really held you know Jewish uh, Spain. And apparently, um, gave Jews the option to convert or to um, to die. You know, people chose different options. The rabbi obviously uh, and his family fled um, to North Africa and eventually landing in Spain. Um, so this really put an end to the you know Arabic culture uh, of. Svarde and, you know other rabbinic figures,
0: right? Right, and this is why we're, we're you know that that really kind of leads kind of leads to, but that you know then we know of the rise of Rabbanim, the fifth talmudist, Alachis, Kedailim of um, Christian Spain in the north. So right, well, yeah. Now, now, what I want to ask you, though, is that, you know, I mentioned, I teased this before. I want to know just, just a little bit more. On them. Did, you know, are there any differences that we see, stark differences in Mahalach and so to speak? Because, just because they are so different, again, people view them as like the same. If you go to Yeshiva, it's like, yeah, you know, the Riv, the Ritzgeist, the Ritmigash, the the and then the Ramam, and yeah, the Rashba, the Ramban, and the Ran, and the Muki Aisef, and the Ritzfah, they're all the same thing in the blender, but they're not really.
1: Right, right. So speaking about these figures, I think that uh, there's a certainly, there's a widespread Assumption or re- often repeated uh, distinction between, you know, this sort of earlier stage of S- of Sephardic Jewry and let's say the Bialy vote or the um, later sp- Spanish authorities who were influenced by the Bialy vote and that claim is that you know the early Spaniards were interested in Pesach and you know Halakha Misa like how to you know the bottom line Halakha from the from the Gemara, and the other Tosvo the Bialy vote the uh, certainly um, you know later. Rishon Exfarad, we're more interested in, you know, maybe in analyzing the Talmud for its own sake. Um, I'm not convinced that that uh is entirely true. It certainly obviously is not representative of a figure like the Rimigash. Um and we we really don't, you know, because he was a conceptualist, someone who thought, you know, very deeply, in addition to being interested in you know Halakha Um and in terms of and, and psak, so you know the, the comparison. The question is, you can you really talk about a, a derech halimud, let's say, or mahalech halimud of all of you know these two hundred years of figures? right? I don't. I'm not sure that you can. You know, the Ramban raised the Beit Midrash, and over several generations, people were working in that tradition. The same thing didn't quite happen in um, sfar You know, in the early earlier period, in the 11th and 12th centuries of right Obviously, the Rif had a tradition, and the Rif had and. Um, ways of thinking and, that, you know, a lot of positions that were uh, passed on, but that, you know, and the Nagid sort of tried to do something, but this really were fits and starts, and we can't really speak of a, as far as I as th- as far as I can tell, of a really unified tradition or a unified way of thinking, as much as we have different figures doing sort of different things, and there are themes that run through them, but I'm not sure the theme is, you know, Mahal as much as it is um, other broader Issues of how to relate to the name and how to relate to Svarad, um, and, you know, sort of those kind of issues that I've tried to touch on today.
0: Right. And then, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, Rashi coming in the but then Rashi and then really the Bali Taisis kind of influence, um, you know, their influences all over the Ramban, Rajput down, you know, in the Christian Spain, Rishonan, whereas it's, it's not the case in the ones that we've been discussing in Muslim Spain.
1: Right, right. So the Remigash apparently has one offhand reference to Rashi, but obviously uh, there's no one has ever said that the Remigash was influenced a great deal by Rashi. The Rambam is a more complicated case. It does seem like there were certain times he um, was a- accessed and was you know adopted Rashi positions, but it's um, difficult to prove. Um, Shama Friedman has a very interesting article on this topic, um, which seems compelling. But, you know, making a broader case is, is, a, is a is a big challenge. Um and when you, when you get to figures like the Ramban, obviously, you know, the Bali Tosvot are the major influence there. Um, you know, the Ramban has a you know, very nice thing to say about the Bali Tosvot. He, st- he studied there, studied with many of these figures, and he um, praises them, uh, you know, quite <laughs> over over the top, I would say. And he's very interested in there. And obviously, their way of thinking uh, for, that, you know, has its roots in Rubenian time in the Re, you know, come and make their way south and really take over um, what we call Sephardic, Sephardic learning.
0: Right. Okay, listen, I, I think we've tried to uh, really give a feel of the Rabbanim and the, uh, you know, Rishanim Talmud HaSalahis, as we said, we left out the grammarians and the, the poets I already covered, and we left out the Parshanim, uh, but I think this was something that was lacking in the series, so I wanted to make sure um, that we got to it, and about, you know, we referenced the later ones, I hope to do an episode on the, let's call you know, again, the Rishanim of, uh, Christian Spain and if listeners are interested in hearing something like that and me you know finding a guest hopefully to talk about that send me an email um, but uh, that's something that I hope to do so just you know in uh, to, to close over here is there any reading on the subject specifically on this that you would uh, reference on this And you know not a broad you know historical sense but like what we've been discussing on
1: yeah, so there really isn't. The closest thing um, to an overview is from Tashma's um, Seafood Parshenit Le Talmud, which is a two-volume work that sort of goes um, figure by figure, but really focused on people who were interested in writing on the Talmud. So he doesn't really deal with all of these figures, that we, that we talked about today. I would say that the, you know, if that's a place to start, and has a number of other articles, a number of other people have published on the topic, important um, pieces, but a systematic study is something that uh, I think it's still awaits scholarship and really histo- people interested in this field. Um, and I, I tried to mention a number of, uh, basically everyone I wrote on, there's a lot to write about. I would encourage anyone to, you know, to take up any of these topics. Um, and nothing, nothing has been exhausted. So I, there isn't really, uh, a good systematic overview. So it would be great if someone uh, would work on it or people would work on you know each of the small pieces together.
0: Absolutely. This is just and we were really doing general and scratching the surface here. And so, you know, like I said, I already have an episode on the Riff and uh, the Rambam, like you said, it should be its own series and hopefully, you know, it will be its own series on Svarim Chatter. You know, and then later on, figures Ramban. There is an episode forthcoming. Um, the Sefer Chenech. There's an episode forthcoming, and other figures uh, that I've done already. So it's kind of, you know, but like a broad sweep. Something that's uh, still missing. So
1: yeah, absolutely. No, there's there's a lot to be done, and a lot of these figures are very interesting. And there's you know, most of them are pretty accessible. Uh, and you know, even like the Rimi Gash, it would be a great to you know systematic study of the Rimi Gash would be really, really interesting and valuable.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Herman, for joining me.